we've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, good morning, church. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to Caesars and the team. We are so glad that you are with us. We are a church that believes in prayer, and I know you pray. And so whichever one of you it was that has been praying for rain and did not pray this morning, thank you. Thank you. We are grateful. No, we're so glad that you're with us. Hope you get to enjoy the sunshine today. Well, every October I have the opportunity to join with uh, over 100 other church planting pastors in our denomination just like me. And we gather in Colorado for two days to share best practices, partner in new church planting efforts. We truly believe the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And this last October, I remember my flight was out of Charlotte and I I was getting on the plane and I was doing what you all do when you get on a plane too. And you're wondering who it is that you're going to be stuck next to for the next many hours, right? And I remember uh, I was coming up on my seat, and there was a guy right next to me uh, covered in head to toe in Boston Red Sox gear, right? Not Boston. Red Sox gear. Anyway, so he was ready, right? Baseball guy. He finds out I'm not a baseball guy. He finds out I'm from L.A. Oh, man, we talked it up, right? He just loved, loved uh, baseball. In fact, for a Red Sox fan, he he kept he started talking about Sandy Koufax, Jackie Robinson, Oral Hershire. Uh, for a Red Sox fan, he sure knew his Dodgers. Uh, it was a great conversation. But then came that fatal moment that I've told you about before as a pastor. Right? You know where this is going. We talked for about ten minutes, and then he asks that question: So what do you do? And I dread this question because well because I know what's about to happen. Right? I know what's about to happen. And uh, so I tell him, well, I'm a pastor at a church. And he goes, like a church church? <laughs> I say, yep, a church church. And then he, he paused and he looked at me. And he said, so you're a Christian, huh? I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. He goes, interesting. And he took his earbuds and he put them in his ears and we didn't speak the rest of the flight. For a lot of people in our world today, Christianity just seems so out of touch, so irrelevant. It's simply something they don't want to talk about. For others, religion isn't just out of touch. It's extremist. It's actually harmful. And we see this idea reflected in popular writings like those of Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. A lot of people in our day and age believe that the world would be a better place without Jesus, without Christians, and without the church. And to be honest, I can't blame them necessarily. Our history professors remind us that some terrible things have been done by the church, from the Crusades to the Inquisition, the Salem witch trials to the American slave trade. And we have come, we've become all too familiar with media reports of abuse by clergy, not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but in Protestant churches too. There are many, many evils that have been done in the name of Jesus or have been defended by those who profess to be his followers. Still other people will point to the good work that Christians have done. People like Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr. And they'll rightly note that Christians have been at the helm of much good in our society as well. So who is right? 
Would the world be a better place if Christians weren't a part of it? To put more directly, what good is Christianity? We are in a series called Asking for a Friend where we're asking some really important questions about faith, about Christianity, and what Christianity believes and what it means. And today we come to a question that for many, for many, is the very reason they gave up on church or maybe even gave up on God. And maybe that's your story. And if it is, I'm glad you're here today. See, right in the middle of the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave, something called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave these fascinating instructions to his followers, the people that would soon become the church. Listen to the charge that Jesus gave to them. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, funny thing about Jesus, Jesus wasn't so concerned about people being good as much as he was concerned about people doing good. It's a little bit of a nerdy thing that's happening in this passage. I won't spend too much time, but I can't pass it up. I just think this is so cool. You see, in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, there are two words for the word good. The first word is kind of what we typically think of when we think of good. It's a word agathos that means being morally good. Like, oh, you're such a good little boy, right? We get a feel for that. The second Greek word is the word kalos, which means beautiful. Any guesses as to which one Jesus is using in this passage? That's right, beautiful. And imagine how those same words would be read if we were to read it that way. Let your light shine before men so that they might see your beautiful deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What's Jesus talking about? Well, see, the Bible equates the idea of beauty and justice and goodness. It says that these go hand in hand and a world that acts justly, loves mercy, walks humbly with God, a world that operates like that as God designed it, man, that is a beautiful thing to see. So what does the historical record suggest about how Christians have done on this one, right? If, if these were Jesus' instructions for us, his followers, How have we done? Have we contributed good and beauty to his world or have we failed to do so as so many would suggest? That's what I want to look at. We're going to walk through uh, five categories of things in our world where, where what I want to suggest is that Christians have actually been a part of some remarkable good in their day. Uh, The day after Jesus died for all intents and purposes, it looked as if his movement was over. Uh, Normally, and we kind of get this, when a person dies, their impact immediately begins to fade, doesn't it? I was reading what one uh, author described. He said, 10 years ago, we had Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. Now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. 
Because when we die, our influence begins to fade. But Jesus inverted this normal human trajectory. And today, I want to point out his impact on our world. First area where we see this remarkable impact of Jesus and his followers is in the area of children. The good that the Jesus movement has done in how the world views children. Now, we can take this for granted. We celebrate childhood. We celebrate the birth of babies. We have entire stores called Babies Are Us dedicated to all the junk that we don't really need, but we buy for our babies anyway, right? We celebrate birth. But this was not the case in the ancient world. And many of you might not know this. In the ancient world, children were not viewed as people. They were actually first viewed as property. Children usually didn't get named until a few weeks after they had been born. Um, This allowed for a chance that that infant might die or it might actually be left to the elements, what was called exposure, and, and just be killed in that fashion, especially if the baby was deformed or of an unpreferred gender. Uh, Some scholars estimate that as many as one in four baby girls, one in four, were abandoned simply because they were born female. Uh, But this custom, this custom of exposure, changed not because it became passe, but because of a group of people who remembered that they were followers of a man who said this, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The early church, the early followers of Jesus actually became known for this. We have extra biblical historical sources of Roman governors and emperors writing about the Christians who would take in the unwanted children. They they would provide for them. They would care for them as their own. One Norwegian scholar uh, writes this. He says that uh, in in a report he calls, When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. In his research, he lays out the case of how Christians single-handedly changed the ancient world's view of childhood. In fact, this change was so complete by just a few centuries after Jesus. In the late 4th century, a Christian emperor outlawed the practice of exposure for the entire empire. Over time, instead of leaving unwanted babies to die, people began leaving them outside monasteries and outside of churches because they knew that the Christians would take them in. The beginning of what we know today as orphanages began to arise all because Jesus said that children matter. Regardless of gender, skin color, mental or physical handicap, all children matter because every child is made in the image of God. But it wasn't just children that Jesus and his followers changed the fate for. Jesus also changed the status of women in the ancient world. A lot of you might not know this. In the ancient world, women were not viewed very highly. Uh, They were seen as socially and intellectually inferior, even in Jewish culture. At the time, women were not allowed to speak in public, especially to a man. They were not allowed to give a testimony in the court of law. But Jesus, the way Jesus treated women was revolutionary. Not only did he stand against the anti-female culture of his day, but he also set a new precedent of kindness, compassion, and respect. In fact, uh, there are so many stories of this in the Bible of Jesus and the way he he gave dignity to women. I I wish we could look at all of them. Let me just highlight two things quickly. First, there's a story of a Samaritan woman that Jesus met one day at the well. 
And this woman, you got to know, not only was she female, uh, but she was actually of an ethnicity. She, she was of an ethnicity that Jesus' friends would not normally have associated with. So not only did Jesus cross the cultural norms of a man talking to a woman, he was also crossing ethnic lines to engage this woman in conversation. And that brief moment, that brief conversation changed that woman's life forever. Jesus was a great defender of women in his day. But another interesting thing that we kind of skip over at Easter time is the fact that, remember, women were not allowed to give testimony in the court of law. But guess who it was that Jesus chose to make his first resurrection appearances to? Women. The very first witnesses of our resurrected Lord were female. Jesus purposely defied cultural norms changing the status for women in his day. And the early church picked up on this. The early church included women. They honored women. They supported widows. And they gave women a freedom and dignity previously unknown in any culture in the ancient world. But it wasn't just with children. And it wasn't just with women. Jesus also gave us a language for human rights. Many of the things that we take for granted these days Things like human dignity and human rights are the direct result of the work of Christians in this world. The idea that people are born equal, that we all have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These ideas all come from Christians who were shaped consciously, unconsciously, or culturally by this very idea that Jesus gave, that every human being has dignity. One of my favorite stories of this comes from Luke chapter 14. Luke was uh, the doctor who did a survey of Jesus' life, and he tells this story about a dinner party that Jesus goes to, uh, what I like to call the most awkward dinner party ever. Jesus had been invited over to this religious leader's house. Now, what you need to know about this particular religious leader was that not that he was religious, but that he was also wealthy. In fact, he kind of had some status markers in his particular community, and this is kind of hard for us to imagine. I, we, we would never do this, ever. But, you know, part of the reason you had a party in that day was to see who got invited and who didn't. I mean, y'all would never pay attention to that, right? But in that world, parties were status markers. And not only that, but how close you got to sit to the host, where your seat assignment was, said something about how important you were. So Jesus shows up to this party and well, Jesus being Jesus decides to shake things up a little bit. First thing he does is he starts messing with the seat assignments. He says, you shouldn't choose the seats of honor next to the host. You instead should choose the seat of humility. Take the last seat at the table. And they're like, oh, this is getting awkward, Jesus. We're trying to see who's important and who isn't, right? And Jesus shaking it up. But then the real moment of awkwardness came uh, when it was time for the toasts. Right before the DJ was about to put on Cool in the Gang, Celebrate Good Times, Jesus picked up his glass of wine. He's ready to give the toast. And you know what he says? Instead of giving a toast, he decides he's going to give some advice to this party host. Listen to what he says. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I know what some of y'all are thinking. You're thinking, I finally have 
proof from the Bible about why I don't have to invite my family over for dinner, right? But that's not what Jesus is talking about here, is it? Jesus would later say to his disciples this. He says, whenever you care for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you care for me. See, Jesus shook up the social order of his day. He said, there is no hierarchy. All are created with dignity. All are human. And his followers remembered this words. And they began to change the world in the name of Jesus. Which brings us to our fourth area where we see the goodness of this movement called Christianity. And that is in the area of hospitals and other charities. Uh, the sociologist Rodney Stark writes this. He says that the primary, one of the primary reasons for the spread of the Jesus movement was the way his followers responded to sick people. During the time of uh, Marcus Aurelius, he was ruling in Rome. An epidemic uh, of smallpox broke out. And we have historical record of this. It devastated, devastated the empire. Uh, some estimate that as much as a third or a fourth of the population died during this epidemic. Uh, at its height in the city of Rome, it was reported that there were 5,000 people a day that were dying from smallpox. And what set into the city was this utter panic. Every man and woman simply looking out for themselves. There are reports of people fleeing the city, of leaving their dying relatives outside on the streets so that they might not get contaminated. Listen to how one writer from the ancient world describes this. At the first onset of the disease, they Pub, uh, excuse me, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated their unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But Stark points out that there was one community that stood against the grain, one group of Jesus followers that remembered they followed a man who would touch lepers a man who told his disciples to go and heal the sick, a man who got into arguments at dinner and embarrassed the whole party. A few years after the plague, one of the church leaders wrote this about the action of Christians during this plague. He writes this, Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. You see, many of these Christians risked their own health. They sacrificed their own lives to care for the sick. This was unheard of in the ancient world, but it was exactly what Jesus had called them to. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, Jesus said. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. Truly, I tell you, whenever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. This idea that the least of these were to be treasured. We, we kind of just take this, someone's sick, we, we intuitively think they, they deserve to be nurtured and cared for. But this idea was unique to Jesus and his followers. That Jesus was somehow present in the despised suffering. This was a Copernican revolution of humanity. 
and it created a whole new vision for the value and worth of the human being. All this led to the fourth century when a church leader named Basil came up with an idea. And I just love this. He wrote, what if we build a place of love to, to love and care for lepers? They don't have any money. That's okay. They don't even have to pay for it. We'll raise the money. You see, this idea that was birthed in the mind of a Jesus follower is what gave rise to our modern-day hospital. The Council of Nyssa, the same council that gave us the Nicene Creed, decided that wherever and whenever a cathedral existed, there must be a hospice. There must be a place to care for the sick and the poor. And that's why even today, many of our hospitals bear the names Good Samaritan, Good Shepherd, St. Anthony. They all point to the same thing, that Jesus and his followers were the ones who changed the way the world viewed the sick and the poor. They were the world's first voluntary charitable institutions, and they were started by, you guessed it, Christians. Today, there are thousands and thousands of charitable organizations All of them trace their roots in one way or another to Jesus. Here's a list of just many. See if you recognize any of these. Thousands and thousands of organizations doing good in our world in the name of Jesus. Okay, one more. Ready for number five? One more. Almost done. One more big one. Aaron, I appreciate all the good stuff you've been listening, but you've kind of been dodging around the issue that I really have questions about. What about slavery? Haven't Christians kind of failed on this one, Aaron? Weren't there some Christians who defended the institution of slavery, even using the Bible? Well, we need to talk about this one for just a minute. You see, in the ancient world, slavery was universal. It was a part of every culture. But in the ancient world, unlike slavery in America, it had virtually nothing to do with race. It could happen to anyone, and it often did. Although conditions varied somewhat, slaves generally had little dignity or worth. A slave was a non-habens personum before the Roman law. That is literally not having a personhood or not having a face. Roman masters literally held the power of life and death over their slaves. Slaves had no court of appeal. In fact, the slaves' pain was so lightly regarded that when they were called to testify in in a court of law, torture could be used, could be applied as a matter of course. And the early church had had to wrestle with this. Like, what do we do? How do we reconcile this cultural institution that exists everywhere and, and what this man Jesus has called us to? This was further complicated by the fact that oftentimes slaves and masters were a part of the same worshiping communities. And can you imagine that moment when a slave might wander into a worship service and find himself amongst a foot-washing ceremony, which is something the Christians did, and how how life-changing that must have been for a slave to suddenly have a master at his feet with a wash basin and a rag washing his feet, a person who otherwise was considered faceless. This was so countercultural. In Jesus' day and in the early church, so much so that the Apostle Paul had to write this reminder to the church in Galatia. He said this, There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, this issue has been a huge blemish on the church's record. 
And throughout the centuries, many Christians have simply decided to go along with the cultural norm on this. Some of them even wrongly used Scripture to defend the institution. And yet, and yet, in every era, there have been those in the name of Jesus who have fought for a vision of dignity and of what Jesus said his mission was, which was to set the captives free. I did not know this until preparing for this message. I found this so fascinating. Did you know that one of the first people in the history of the world that we have record of to denounce the institution of slavery was a 4th century Christian bishop named Gregory. In a sermon he gave in 379, he called Christians back to the vision of Genesis 1 that every human being is made in the image of God. And there are others too. And you know many of these names. Others from our modern era, like William Wilberforce, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Beecher Stowe, all of whom fought for the abolition of slavery based in part or whole on the teachings of Jesus. The Christian record on this one is far from perfect. It is very dark. But there have always been those who have fought for the way of Jesus. Now, of course, human trafficking is still an issue today, isn't it? But there are folks who are fighting against it, even now. Folks like my friend Blythe Hill, and I want to tell you about Blythe. Uh, I first met Blythe in Los Angeles. She was uh, part of my young adult ministry there. In fact, she was one of our community group leaders. And Blythe had a group of about eight other women. All of them were in their 20s. And uh, Blythe had uh, been reading about some of the current human trafficking going on in our world. And she, she came to me and she said, Aaron, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do about this. I, I can't just remain silent on this. I, I, I think this upsets Jesus, and I, I don't know what to do. Well, I didn't have any answers for her, but Blythe went back to her community group, and, and they began talking and praying and dreaming, and, and Blythe came up with this idea. She got all the girls in her community group to agree to wear a dress every day through the month of December and to post a photo on social media about that dress to draw attention. They called it Dress-Simber. And Dress-Simber became a, a, uh, an advocacy movement highlighting the issues of modern-day slavery. Not only that, Blythe and her friends decided to start collecting funds through this campaign. And that first year, they raised a couple hundred dollars that they gave to IJM and A21, two organizations that are working to fight human slavery today. Now, what began in just one little community group quickly spread. The next year, there were multiple groups in our church doing it. And then the year after that, there were multiple churches. On and on and on. And over the last seven years, Dressember has continued to build momentum in our world. So much so that this last year, Blythe was invited to speak at TED, uh, delivering a talk on her story and how they're fighting human trafficking today. In fact, I've actually extended an invitation to Blythe to come and join us here to share her story and how we can be a part of this too. And I can't wait to see if she's going to be able to join us. So I did tell her in North Carolina, we probably ought to call it Jacket February, and we'll just wear rain jackets every day for February. But here's what's remarkable. Here's what's remarkable. Blythe uh, emailed me back and said, you know what? Uh, In 2018, get this, they raised over $3 million to fight human trafficking. All because a 20-something female Christian in Los Angeles said, I cannot stand by while this is happening to other people in our world. My faith in Jesus will not allow it. 
Christians have been on the front line of abolition, women's voting rights, child labor laws, public education, literacy, justice causes of all kinds. They've created universities, hospitals, orphanages. They've shaped art, literature, music, science, government, and civic organizations. From the very beginning, Christians have understood that they are the light of the world, and just as Jesus taught them, they are to do good and beautiful deeds that others might glorify their Father in heaven. What good is Christianity? What good? It is quite possibly the greatest force of good our world has ever known. Now, I don't know how this message strikes you this morning. Some of you are just amazing at this. You give your lives away. Oh, you you do amazing work. And if that's you, I hope that today you can just hear a well-done, good and faithful servant keep going from Jesus. Just a just a, a Jesus high five, right? Keep going. But for some of us, maybe we're like, Aaron, I want to be a part of that, but I don't know where to start. Well, here is the good news, my friend. Jesus says it can be as simple as giving a cup of cold water. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Anywhere we are doing good, we are doing good for Jesus. Which means... That whenever you invite someone who doesn't have a place to sit to join you at your school lunch table, you are doing good. Whenever you're online and you choose to build others up with your words rather than ridiculing and tear them down, you are doing good. Whenever you treat others with dignity or welcome the stranger or befriend someone who is different from you, you are doing good. When you care for those with special needs or physical limitations, when you sacrifice time Uh, opportunity or finances to meet the needs of others. When you build and lead companies that create jobs and provide for families and celebrate the success of co-workers, when you use your artistic or musical talents to create beauty, when you teach, when you serve, when you coach, when you mentor a child, you are doing good. Whenever you seek justice, love mercy, give generously, serve humbly, listen attentively, and love lavishly, my friend, you are doing good. And man, when Christians will live like that, it is the most beautiful thing the world has ever seen. And our Father in heaven gets all the credit. All the credit. We started today with a story of a guy on an airplane And when he heard the word Christian, he just closed it out and put his earbuds in. But can you imagine, can you imagine if we could be known as a church so known for our good deeds that it would cause people to take their earbuds out and say, I'm not sure what I think about this, Jesus. I'm not sure what I think about this religion. But man, the good that they do, I want to know more about that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good and beautiful deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What good will you be a part of creating this year?
It was in that same sermon, just after he gave the Sermon on the Mount, that some of Jesus' followers asked him to teach them how to pray. And he taught them a prayer that was about this very thing, that the goodness of up there would come down here in and through Jesus' kingdom. And it seems only fitting that we might pray that prayer as we close. Would you stand and let's pray this prayer together. Let's pray this out loud, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.